Thank you so much for joining Really Specific Stories, Balta. It's uh, great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's uh, fun to be here. Now, I'm going to ask you the first question that I ask every participant, and that is, how did you first get into podcasts? Oh, boy. Now, that probably dates back to before they called it podcast, if I'm to be honest. I... Like, uh, in the same way that uh, I had a personal website that was updated regularly with essays before they called it a blog, and then I added an RSS feed to it with a Perl script, if I remember correctly, uh, once the like the original RSS 9, 0.9, I think, was out. And I remember there uh, when uh, being a part of the discussion, uh, seeing a discussion online where uh, they talked about enclosures in uh, RSS feeds, and I was like, oh, "That that looks neat. Like, so you could subscribe and get like audio files and stuff. That looks that, that that's clever." But I, I sort of uh, I didn't really uh, get into it until sort of it was more of a like a, a G whiz tech thing first i didn't really start listening as a uh, sort of uh, putting time in as an avid listener until uh, uh it, it really exploded in the early like early to mid 2000s for background I, I came into interactive media and web development uh from a media background so uh, i studied interactive media uh, at a art media design faculty and before that i was involved uh like in media production like worked uh, freelance radio production and worked in a tv news studio before i got into interactive media as a as a study so uh, i was always interested in the whole radio and audio uh, i actually come from a uh i'm like a third generation audio radio guy or fourth my great grandfather was was one of the founders of the Icelandic National Broadcasting Service wow so it seemed like a natural fit once it first started so uh, uh, switched a lot of my listening to it didn't uh, uh, sort of um, get into recording podcasts until uh, much later but I was a heavy listener in the uh, in the early days before it dropped off once I finished uh, my postgraduate studies, I don't know if you can relate to this, but there's a lot of, when you're doing like postgraduate studies and research, there's a lot of time where you'd like just hammering away at the computer and need to have something in the background to listen to. So it was very useful for that. So whenever podcasting started, I guess that's probably the time I, I started. <laughs> can you give me some background about that? family, uh, not necessarily tradition, but that flowing narrative through your family. How did you grow up feeling about audio or what was your understanding of the significance of things like radio and other audio media? It's like it started, like I said, it started with my uh, great grandfather, who was uh, one of the he ran the broadcasting service newsroom for during World War Two. And he was also one of their main announcers. And uh, there's a famous story in the family that where, because back in the day, uh, radio broadcasts were only uh, like the, the only broadcast during workdays. It was like this 24-hour broadcasting wasn't wasn't there. And one thing that people don't actually know is that the first involvement of the U, uh, the U.S. military in World War II was uh, taking over the occupation of Iceland in early 1941 from the British. 
the British invaded. The only neutral country in World War II to be invaded was invaded by the British in World War, uh, at the start of uh, World War II because they wanted to prevent the Germans from invading. So they did a preemptive invading of a of a pacifist uh, neutral country, which is like very British Empire logic. But you know what are you can do. But because they were like in the middle of World War II, they couldn't actually afford to occupy Iceland. So they asked the Americans to do it. And that was the first involvement, America's first involvement in World War II. So we had a lot of American soldiers in Iceland before Pearl Harbor. And when the news, like the tele- telegram came in uh, at the new- newsroom um, where my great grandfather was working, came in to announce like Pearl Harbor had been struck by the Japanese and the US was now a part of uh, a joined World War II, a declared war on the Axis powers. It was like they turned off the broadcasting. They 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 they, they, was, they were done for the day. So it's like he, he wanted to figure out, he had this big news and he wanted to figure out how to get it to everybody. And he knew that the US soldiers were having a big ball at Hotel Borg, which is literally something like 40 meters away from where the radio broadcast station was. So basically what he did is he just took the telegram, marched right into down the street and right into Hotel Borg, and he marched up on the stage, pushed the singer out of the way, and did his radio announcement of um, that they joined World War II to the soldiers right then and there, interrupting their, their ball. So that's how quite a few US soldiers in Iceland found out that they were actually at war. And it's kind of, uh, you, you're raised with this sort of mythology, like my aunt ran the children's broadcast for the broadcasting service for probably like 25, 30 years. And my mother started work in radio at an early age, and she uh, she just retired like recently. And she was a, it's been an investigative journalist for the uh, broadcasting service for decades, uh, winning a few awards. And so literally, like, as a child, I, I would go regularly and have um, eat at the canteen at the broadcasting service. I'd be dragged in by my mother's friends to do the whole children's vox pop um, and my aunt, uh, which, you know, like I said, she ran the children's section. I remember a few times uh, Iceland being a small country, we got several times angry phone calls from government ministers who were um, phoned my mother's home uh, phone number landline because they were dissatisfied with some of the reported she'd been doing, where she <laughs> discovered some dodgy thing that they'd been doing, and they'd you know start shouting at the phone before they realised that they were speaking to a twelve-year-old and not like <laughs> my mother. So it's it's been a constant presence in my life. And so when I was first got into college, it was logical for me to start doing freelance radio uh, journalism and working in the studio. I worked as a vision mixer on the uh, newsroom studio where. You know, the, they do the live live interviews and, you know, there's a guy at the button when the director says, and now cut to camera two, camera two, camera two. And they go like, tick, and they cut to camera two. And it's like, that's your job. That's literally just like listening to the cue and like, you know, doing the, and that, you know, and then they ask, oh, dude, can you, can you fade over, uh, over onto the wider camera? Want to get like this dramatic moment. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was, um, it's kind of like an entire culture that it's kind of colored my attitudes towards web development as well. So even though I got into interactive media and from there into web development, 
I can't get rid of the um, sense that hypertext and the web is a media environment and that needs to have a, you know, it's kind of hard to, to explain what, how different that is from looking at it as a an app environment where there's this trend toward minimalism where every app looks the same and you can, but it has no design and it's just default widgets and it's so boring. It's just so inane and it's so unmedia. It's so um it, it so it it's it's basically colored my entire life. Um so it's kind of makes me feel a bit sad that I've cut down on my on read on listening to podcasts over the past two or three years, two or three years because it, you know the promise is there, but it's just I, I haven't been I haven't been fe- I stopped feeling it. Like around the start of COVID, although I don't think COVID was to blame, just not feeling not feeling the the vibe anymore. Yeah, if that makes sense. No, no, it makes sense. And you know, habits change. When that pandemic came in, lots of things changed globally, and mm. media habits or what you decide to consume or produce would certainly go along with that. I'm very interested in that turning point or that shift that you said in your career in your life, going from working in radio or broadcasting to shifting to software development. And undoubtedly, that would tie in in some way to your technological interest and maybe even flowing Mm. through to tech podcasts as a community and an environment. Can you tell me what brought you from that background and that career in broadcasting to one in software development? Oh, uh, hypercard originally. Uh, I was a hypercard kid. Uh, there's a <laughs> probably the the last uh, generation that where my dad brought the old Mac SE from work with hypercard on it, and Macs at that time basically had no games except maybe you know Solitaire and Tetris. You know if you're lucky, but it had a hypercard and you could make things with hypercard and you can put together stacks and clicky thingies and it was awesome, and so. Uh, when uh, we got the internet later on, or literally, I got the internet. I literally got uh, got a, a summer job to buy the modem for the the computer in our house uh, or our apartment. <laughs> I was the only one who was actually interested. Um, so the first thing I did, obviously, was like found myself a WYSIWYG uh, website maker and made my first website, and that was probably uh, like in the mid nineties. And was dissatisfied with the WYSIWYG thing because it wasn't hypercard. I was like, this is rubbish. <laughs> I might as well do this myself. So I went and, and learned how to code. And it kind of became a, initially, it was just a hobby. Like it was supposed to be like this sideline thing that I just did for fun. But then once I finished my undergraduate degree, which was in comparative literature, because uh, um, strangely enough, my reasoning for for doing comparative literature for under undergraduate degree was I had done like hard sciences in junior college, and I felt that left me with an imbalanced education. So I felt sorely felt the need to um, add some humanities to my education. So even though it made no financial sense, I did my undergraduate degree in comparative literature alongside freelancing, and then I decided to that the best way forward was to join the two, that to study 
like interactive media. So study the web as a media artifact, as a media production artifact that included audio and and uh, interactivity and animation. Back in those days, we just still had. Like, I think most of those courses have disappeared by now. Like most of those degrees, they're all like comp sci or design. But that was, uh, it was literally a, a, um, a, a, a degree you could go to the media faculty and you were studying alongside filmmaking students and radio broadcast students and uh, studied at U- UWE. They're barrassed on campus, literally like their audio production degrees were directly fed into the like BBC radio so there it was still like in the middle of this media environment but with interactive media and we were like doing this cutting edge thing there was 2000 it was like five minutes later we had the the dot-com crash uh, crashing down around us but for like five seconds there uh, I was in the coolest degree ever uh, but even after it it all went down we were still like the Cutting edge weirdos running around alongside the uh, alongside the like the TV broadcast people and the radio broadcast people, and the thing is, uh, I realized very early on that this crap isn't like a uh, hypercard. None of the WYSIWYG tools are any good. Uh, there was Flash, which was amazing, but closed off. Flash doesn't get credit anymore for uh, it's the authoring environment. It was it had an amazing authoring environment that was so accessible to people who didn't have coding experience. But if you wanted to work outside of the Flash sandbox, you had to learn to code. So I just taught myself to code so that I could do the interactive media projects that I was hoping to do. And quickly, I became the coder for everybody else on the course because nobody else bothered to learn how to code. It's like, so it's like I ended up being uh, being the unofficial coder for everybody else. Um, and then uh, at the end of it, I applied, looked at what jobs were available, and turns out that the uh, all the best paying jobs were in soft, in web development. So I applied to be a web uh, for a web development job here in Iceland and got it. And that's basically how I got pulled over into into the web development world. Although I have always had like uh, one foot in media production, in that I I decided to like for what, some random uh, reason uh, fixated early on ebooks. I like trying to make interactive, dynamic ebooks. Even like focused my PhD on it, and I finished my PhD in two thousand six. So. The Kindle didn't come out until like a year later. The iPhone didn't come out in t- until 2008. So, uh, you know, I, I when I was doing my PhD, it's like I'm studying this barren wasteland of nothingness. There is nothing here. And I'm like this lone voice in the wilderness talking about how this thing could be cool. And then I like finish my PhD and turn around abandon ebooks and then five minutes later it's like oh my god here's amazon re- uh, resurrecting ebooks as a concept and then the iphone and it's ebooks again and it's the ipad and it's ebooks again and it's like fuck's sake sorry i'm allowed <laughs> to swear of course it's up to you yeah but it's um coincidentally the the ebook sphere is kind of how i uh sort of where i ended up doing most of my like podcast appearances in that the ebook thing was a bubble. wasn't obvious at the time, but in hindsight, it was a massive bubble that was created by 
uh, tech companies funneling a truckload of money into something that wasn't going to be sustainable in the long run. Uh, having a degree uh, in that specializes in something that's centered on the bubble is a great way to get um, podcast invites, I'll tell you. So I spoke on a few podcasts and did a lot of conference talks in those early years from 2008 until probably 2014. That was when it was kind of obvious that ebooks were not going to take over the world. That's kind of the the duration for tech bubbles. It's like five to six years from sort of see this with the crypto, like uh, from the uh, from the moment when you can tell this is a bubble until it's obviously obviously falling apart. It's something like five to six years. So it, in about five to six years' time, we're going to see the same thing happen with the, the AI nonsense. This it's a pop culture, the the tech in, tech industry, and uh, that's kind of where my why I ended up getting a little bit disaffected by tech podcasts specifically. It became it was kind of coincidental and not that it happened around the time that COVID started, but there was a period at the start of COVID where obviously everybody was in lockdown. I was working in Montreal and Montreal went into lockdown. And um, um, you had a lot of time to listen to podcasts and stuff. And I started just to notice that this is just a pop culture. There is no structured debate here. There's no understanding of, they don't even see themselves that they are participating in a, in a pop culture. And it, all of a sudden, there was this moment where it felt like, I was the only, like, I was a fish in the ocean that saw the water for the first time and was trying to tell everybody else about this thing called water. And everybody was like, what, what are you talking about? Is this just life? It's like, and uh, probably around the same time, I was reading uh, Ursula and Franklin, uh, The Real World of Technology, and I kind of hammered the, the point home in as well. Now, all of this talk about, like, the, the, the latest tech, uh, latest phones, the latest machines, the latest processors, the latest platforms and uh, features, and all of this is all just pop culture. It's, it's like listening to music nerds talk about like this year's post punk pop, you know, neo surrealism, and it's like it's all just it's it's just a newest iteration of pop music. And it's like I love pop music. I'm a huge fan of pop music, but. The difference between pop music and tech is that pop music knows what it is. They know that their job is to come up with the new, with the fancy, with the interesting, with the different. But tech is a pop culture that doesn't realize that their job is to be interesting, <laughs> be engaging, be novel. And they keep doing the same spin on the same fucking thing. And it's the same white dudes. Uh, who were all talking about, and I just, it just, it lost me. It just, I, I, there was a moment there when I was listening to, I think, uh, Accidental Tech Podcast, or I think it might have been, or might have been, might even have been something with Jason Snell, or, and it was just like, I've heard you say this a thousand times before. It's like, uh, I've, I, like, I could probably guess your next sentence just, you know, off the top of my head. And I kind of like uh, turned off and it was felt kind of sad because it was like being a part of this community, keeping up with uh, these um, like characters and these people that 
like you felt you were, uh, felt that you were a part of something, but it kind of felt unbearable to continue to listen to it after that. It was a it was a really st- a lot a lot of perspective changes uh, <laughs> over the past three years for understandable reasons. It's like. Uh, I mean, at that point, uh, I I also decided to move back home to Iceland, largely because uh, I I just couldn't uh, justify uh, all the flying I was doing. Uh, so I haven't flown now, gone on an airplane for three years, and it's sort of like made specific changes to my life to like minimize my footprint, and it just felt like um, I don't know. It's it was like seeing things for the first time. There's a concept in comparative literature or lit- like literary theory called defamiliarization. Uh, Viktor Shlovsky, Bertolt Brecht, and Bertolt Brecht did, 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 does this a lot in his in his drama and his plays, where the idea is to take the normal and defamiliarize it so that you see it for what it is for the first time, and you you see the radical and the normal, like and the the thing that should be unbearable, uh, but you've learned to bear or made unbearable again. And it felt like the pandemic kind of defamiliarized my entire existence, and it you had to reconsider everything. Um, I, uh, weirdly enough, I, I started listening more to YouTube videos. And the strange thing is they're better scripted. Uh, like the tech podcasts are, are generally unscripted. They're just basically, you know, middle-aged white dudes, maybe with a token minority thrown in here and there. And they're talking about their interests. And it's like the average length of it is like an hour. <laughs> or like, I think ATP. I mean, look at the uh, accidental tech podcast. They the average length there is like two hours. It's like, oh my god, what are you doing? Two hours. It's like I, uh, I kind of like uh, sort of after the fact, surprised that I managed to get through a single one, let alone be a regular listener. It's kind of amazing, but it's entirely unscripted. But if you go look at like um, like the YouTube video that was very quite long, it was an hour and a half. Called Line Go Up. I went the did the rounds uh, a while back on crypto and and NFTs, and even though it uses visuals a lot, uh, you could actually listen to the entire thing and get the get the uh, decent sense of it. And that's because it's actually scripted, it's edited, it's worked, it's thought through. And and the same thing with there was a um, a video call or on I think what defunct land that they talk about defunct like park attractions uh and they did uh a video on the uh on like disney disney world's ticketing system and it's like it's just like it, it, entirely around the technological design and implementation of of a ticketing system which is an incredibly nerdy topic but it turns out that if you really want to go deep into an like and the same thing with uh, the crypto video that's a nerdy topic it should be uh this is what tech should be about it's like diving deep into specific technologies and how they're implemented and why. And these YouTube videos did that, but they did that by doing the research, by editing, you know, pre-recording, editing, polishing their work and putting together a cohesive argument. And I just, it's incredibly rare, um, I've found, to see a podcast do that. And the uh, sort of, I, I can't actually remember, well, there was one, I think, I uh, can't remember the series. There was a series on like the early days of the iPhone app store. And uh, I think they 
can't remember who did it, but they did interviews and it was edited and it was structured. It was really good. And they never did it again because it didn't get the same listens as the blah de blah. Uh, let's listen to some random tech guys poker game um, genre, which they usually do, which was a bit depressing. But I, I don't know what uh, sort of it might have something to do with the, uh, the uh, business model, as in YouTube get ads. Uh, and YouTube creators get a, a cut of the of their advertising re- revenue. So, if you, unless you're demonetized, there and uh, then you know the more popular you get, the more money you're likely to get. But with a podcast, you basically need sponsorships, and there's kind of like a baseline of of revenue that they're, they're going to get based on subscription. And you're not going to improve your your business model by increasing your costs it's like you it's i think i mean that's my theory i don't know i i don't actually do podcasts like we're i we i've, I've done two goes at trying to do a podcast both the times with a friend of mine called tom Abba, who uh is an academic in interactive media i think we did one which was kind of like a, a special series uh of podcasts called this is not the future of the of the book uh which was basically us talking about interactive ebooks and it was kind of spinning off from a project that we did so it was always supposed to be temporary uh, so we did a few of those but that was kind of like a, a one-off then we did try to make another podcast uh, and we recorded actually a ton of episodes i think we recorded something like uh, nine or ten episodes but i stopped releasing them after the third episode i just wasn't feeling it there was a lot of work involved in doing it properly it felt like we weren't saying anything that needed to be said. So I wasn't really motivated in doing the work that I needed to be doing it. So I just stopped. I mean, literally, I think I have somewhere on my hard drive, something like six unedited episodes, probably more even, that never got released because just we didn't, weren't feeling it. We weren't feeling that we were saying anything worthwhile. I mean, it was fun, a lot of fun to record. I mean, you know, it's uh, you're blagging with your friend. You're, you're talking about stuff. Like, I imagine all of those tech podcasts, roundtable-style tech podcasts, I'm sure they all enjoy it immensely. But, like, a bunch of were, like, listening over the episodes and going over it, and they were like, ah, what are we doing here, man? It's like there's something missing. So it's, I mean, at some point I might uh, sort of, if I, you know, take a mental break, I might edit together a few and dump them uh, on the RSS feed. One thing I've been doing uh, um, um, over the past couple of years is I've been writing ebooks, uh, tech-oriented ebooks that where I dig into like specific topics and uh, explain them. <laughs> so it's like I, I did one called "Data: The Software Crisis" uh, that's basically on problems in software development and how to address them. And uh, it's a systems thinking approach, so it's a deep dive, analytical and stuff. Uh, did one on AI, on the business risks of AI. Don't need to buy it because the short version is there's a lot of them and you shouldn't use it. It's like if you're if you have a business and you're planning on integrating AI into your business, don't like just don't. It's too. It's not worth it. Uh, so <laughs> wait for it. Wait a couple of years. It's it's not ready yet. Uh, so there, I saved you twenty five uh, thirty five bucks. <laughs> the difference there's a difference in sentiment with um, the uh, podcast versus the ebooks in that. I felt like uh, with ebooks, I was saying something that nobody else is saying. Um, I was making a point and doing a, a kind of analysis that you aren't seeing anywhere else. And I'm not sure 
I could do that in a podcast form without 10 times more work than it would take me if I was doing it when, uh, like writing, I've, I've uh, I write really fast. I, I'm, I'm a good editor. Uh, I've got people who will, will volunteer edit it, edit my text. I don't have people who will volunteer to edit my uh, audio recordings because that's a lot of work. It's it's like so so much work. Um, so it's like the 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 amount of work involved in in making the same point and the same kind of analysis in podcast form is too much. And I don't think it would get that much audience anyway because it's deeply analytical i don't think that fits the form that well so it's i don't know that my mom would be disappointed by by that because she spent her entire life doing deep investigative journalism uh in radio form but she's also an incredibly like succinct and to the point writer where she she's it's kind of amazing the the way that she, uh, anyway there's a reason why she won awards uh so <laughs> bragging about her mother that's uh but anyway <laughs> or, but on the other hand she was using she had to had the resources of the Icelandic national broadcasting service to fall back on where they had like the technical staff you know experienced editors experienced uh and when she got into got into tv because um, that's what you had to do. Uh, you can't just do one thing anymore. Uh, everybody has to be able to do, like, you can't just be a radio reporter. You have to be a radio reporter. You have to be able to write on the web. You have to be, be able to do TV. Um, so that's easier to do when you've got massive re- the massive resources of a government-funded broadcasting service. Uh, but for an individual like me, like a freelancer, um, I have to pick where I can get my message the best across, and um, at the moment, that's that's text and and websites, and it's kind of remarkable how how much cheaper it is than it is doing the podcast side, and it's kind of well, it actually kind of amazes me how even like I, I sort of even though I'm not getting rich of my ebooks, but they sell decently, like. For specialized niche topics, um, so I'm kind of surprised that there's is more of it going around. I have one thought, uh, which might be a question. I wonder a lot of the like online courses uh, I'm seeing are basically they're screencasts for the most part, but a lot of them could work almost as effectively as podcasts. So I'm wondering if uh, that isn't uh, kind of hasn't ended up being the business model with the deep dive audio content that I've been looking for. I don't know, but it's interesting times to be sure. Uh, nothing normal at the, uh, <laughs> in today's normal. Yeah. Odd world. Well, I have to say you raised so many really interesting points in what you just said. I mean, you addressed some of the diversity issues of podcasting, that tension between scripted narrative journalism or narrative formats in podcasting versus the conversational unscripted roundtable. There's also the pop culture element. You went through so many things there. And I also appreciated your characterization or that contrast between the work that's involved in audio versus maybe text Mm. and maybe also the fan work and the fun that goes into that, the positives and the negatives. Something that it reminded me of 
also reaching back to your mention of the Mac and Hypercard and history and maybe the things that informed your initial interest in podcasting. One of the case studies for this very project that I'm doing is a series called 20 Max for 2020, which was produced by one of the podcasters you mentioned, Jason Snell. Now, reaching into your interactive media background and your skills, that show is interesting in the sense that it was a podcast, but also a video series and a series of textual blog posts. Given your background and your skills in interactive media, what do you make of this kind of triple format for a show like that? Is there potential or interest in that sort of thing for you? What do you make of a kind of fleshed out environment that goes beyond just the audio? Those are the only podcasts I engage with today are the ones that are multi-format. It's, um, I'm much more likely to listen to a podcast if I know it has a transcript, so that if I want to catch up on an episode, I don't have to listen to it. Uh, I can just read through the transcript. But So being able to alternate between formats is immediately going to make me, at least, more likely to listen to that. And based on what I see like where, when I speak to people around me and on, on social media, I think that applies to a lot more people, that this sort of being able to pick and choose which version, like whether it's text or audio, or even like whether you want to, you know, go on on YouTube and watch the podcast as a screencast where you actually see people's faces. I think that people are actually, that is more, more likely to be the future than not. I don't do much, uh, go much for prediction. Uh, I think that's a mugs game. Because, like, it's just, uh, I just wrote uh, I wrote an article where I, I was, like, comparing the statistical illusion of uh, AI intelligence to the psychic's con. And the, the one of the fundamentals of the psychic's con is the, like, unverifiable predictions. And uh, predictions are just never a good idea. It, it's, it's just, it's... By the time the you know it's verified, it's it's um, so I'm not going to make predictions, but I think that in the here and now, this is, this is going to like multi-format podcasts are much more likely to reach a broader audience, and I think with that comes a broader revenue stream, and that's like as you can tell, I come from the side of media that where people like to get paid. <laughs> I'm not like. A, uh, it, the sort of uh, I don't come from uh, like my perspective isn't isn't in the on the consumer consumer side. I, no matter even like when I watch like TV or F or um, you know uh, or a movie, it's like at the back of my head there's this thought: Oh my god, that shot is expensive. <laughs> it becomes part of your worldview that you can't get get rid of, which is fine. It's uh, same thing with compared to literature. It's like. You have to learn how to read for enjoyment, relearn it after uh, after after um, you graduate. Um, but yeah, I think uh, with the uh, multi-format podcast, uh, we it solves some of the issues that I talked about earlier. And, uh, first one is being uh, accessibility, and that it's easier to get into it, even if you don't have don't have time to listen. Um, having it on YouTube means that you can uh, catch into potentially get a cut of the. Uh, YouTube ad revenue pie, which is uh, uh, one thing that's under uh, uh, people that's uh, underappreciated at the at the moment by a lot of people is that YouTube is the only social media platform with revenue sharing that uh, like proper 
decent cut of revenue sharing for people who post uh, a post on it. Twitter doesn't do that. Facebook doesn't do that. It's one of the reasons why you tend to get like the the average YouTube video it has much higher production values than your average Facebook post or Facebook video or or Twitter post or Twitter video. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's revenue sharing. It's like revenue sharing, revenue sharing, revenue sharing. Yeah, it's like, and all of these new Twitter competitors like Threads or Blue Blue Sky or Massive and all that. It's like none of them, none of them have any thoughts uh, about like revenue sharing or you know how do we actually give people the financial space to invest in production for this platform? Doesn't matter. They're just here there to uh, you know harvest your presence and eyeballs, and it doesn't really matter if you enjoy it. So YouTube is an anomaly in this regard, and uh, I don't know how long it's going to last because. <laughs> You know, tech being what it is, they fired a bunch of people and they're they're coasting on their systems reliability engineering that was in place last year. And I don't know how long it's going to last until it starts breaking, but it's going to start start breaking. It's just an event. You don't lay off 20% of your workforce without negative consequences for the reliability on your platform. It's a testament to the qualifications of the people you just fired that it will take months, if not years, for it to uh, for it to appear. But it's going to go to shit at some point. It's like it happened faster with Twitter because they fired he fired seventy five percent, the rest only fired twenty percent. It's going to hit. So I don't know what's going to happen with YouTube, but you need that diversification of whatever if you're going to uh, improve your production values. So if you can make sure that your show is on on YouTube as well, put it on YouTube, put it on on podcast uh, on the on RSS because that's how you're going to build up your audience, like so that you're not beholden to the YouTube's algorithm because that's where the YouTubers fall down. They get screwed by every single algorithm change, and like all of a sudden they're go- they're broke. So you need the RSS baseline of the podcast to build your audience. You need the text transcripts in the website for for accessibility to bring people in, you know, and you need your Patreon sponsorship or whatever, so that you've got your true fans to fund fund these things. And that's how you make something that's worthwhile, well produced, and well funded. But that's also a lot of work, and it's hard to bootstrap it from zeros. Like you, you. You have to start off with something, whether it's a website and then add a podcast, or you add, or you start off with a podcast, then add the website, then you add the YouTube, and then you need to figure out some production system that doesn't cost you too much money to make all of this work. And that's actually one of the few places where AI could actually help, as in transcripts. Like you can get high quality transcripts for less with things like Whisper. Not perfect. You still need to edit it and fix the errors, but is cheaper than it was even like a, a year ago. Descript, for example, um, it's an AI-based tool that's started off just for podcasting. But I think they saw the same thing I'm talking about, that everybody who needs to be in this needs to be multi-format. So they added video and screencasting to their mix. So like I said, the RSS part is a vital part of it. It's like with the with Substack. People call it a Substack, but they're they're just blogs. Uh, they have an RSS feed, and the email goes over a bog standard a bog standard email list. It's exactly the same format I, like I had on my. I, I I set up my blog to do the same thing back in two thousand eight. So it's like 
I don't care if you call it a Substack or whatever or or newsletter. It's a blog. That, that's a fun thing. And I don't think a lot of people don't know that, but every Substack has an RSS feed. Uh, so you don't actually have to subscribe to to the email. You can just literally just paste that URL into your feed reader and voila, you can keep up with all of the public posts without having to uh, give them your email. And that's also amazing for audience building. And I mean, if you're if you're into this, like, I think I'm one of the few people who's got like still has RSS feed anal- analytics on his website. <laughs> like, I think I've got something like two thousand subscri- subscribers on RSS. Um, like, and they they can't they're counting active subscribers. Um, so those are the reports that you get from. It's like it's an old system in RSS where the various aggregators they actually report as a part of the request the number of active subscribers on their service to that RSS feed. So. Anybody can actually build an off-the-shelf RSS uh, feed analytics th- uh, 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 sort of widget without much investment. So, and there's a a bunch that I still offer it as a paid service. So it's like I've I've got twice the number of of subscribers on my RSS feed than I do on my mailing list. So RSS rules, man. It's like the demo the the biggest democratizing force on the web today. It's the thing that. That drives things back and forth. And it's like, even to in social media where everybody's been talking about, oh my God, what am I going to do now that Twitter's dead and how am I going to get traffic to my post? It's like half the time, if I don't announce my posts on on uh, on like Twitter or some social media and I do a search for the for the blog post later on, somebody who was subscribed to my blog, uh, to my uh, the RSS feed for the blog, Will have posted the uh, posted the link um, for me there. It's like it's a baseline. It's like it's the foundation that you build on because it's the one you own. You you can't build a business on other people's uh, social media networks where they control the graph, where they control the algorithm, where they control the uh, updates. That's kind of the reason why, for all its faults, podcast is going to survive. How are you going to kill it? It's like, even though I might have lost interest uh, to some podcasts, it's nobody going to be able to shut it down. Literally, the only thing you need to do to host a podcast is a website. And I think, if I remember correctly, even even like Apple Podcast app lets you paste in a URL. You don't actually have to go through their service. You can just paste in a URL to the feed and they'll fetch it. So it's amazing. And it's like, I don't think a lot of people realize just how amazing it is. But uh, What's more important, because like I said, I come from the production side of this thing, and I'm always looking at the costs and revenue and and side of this. It's the like the foundation of to, of running an online business is you need your RSS feed for your updates. You need a mailing list for the people who uh, really don't want to miss your uh, your update. Everything else is extra. It's like. The uh, the core of your business is going to come from the people who have actively subscribed to you specifically and are bypassing whatever social media gate- gatekeepers there are. I, I do I don't get the online businesses who don't even have an RSS feed because they're literally leaving money on the table, and that's kind of. <laughs> I'm sorry to sound so uh, mercenary about it, but it's like I've been doing this for doing web dev for. 25 years, something like, and I was involved in, worked in publishing for years. And it's like, 
you can't get good stuff without the money. Like you, unless people get paid to make the good stuff, you don't get the good stuff. So you have to have a revenue stream there somewhere. You have to have a, a sustainable business model. And like throwing stuff on Twitter, that's not a sustainable business model. Throwing stuff on Spotify, that's that's not a sustainable business model. You need that direct communication. And why people voluntarily give that up to join the trendy social media site du jour is beyond me. <laughs> but what are you can do? Keep on trucking, do your own thing, ignore the crowd, I guess. What I've really enjoyed about listening to you so far is that you've given very clear ideas of your own shifts in identity and career and the very multifaceted way that you think about all these media interacting together. Mm. One element of your identity that I'd really like to explore is the Mac. And the reason that I bring that up is because earlier in this discussion, you brought up that memory of using HyperCard or family bringing home a Macintosh. And very central to this Apple tech podcasting community, whose content you say you've moved away from somewhat, that usage of the Mac or Apple products, this pop culture thing that seems like it was some sort of connection or or interest. Can you tell me about your connection with technology and the Mac as a tool or a brand, how you've changed or how you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I was always a Mac person. Like uh, back in the 90s, we were all Mac people. Uh, I think I had, what was it, the Performers? 7,000, no, 5,000-something 5, 5, was probably the worst Mac ever made. <laughs> but, you know, it was a Mac, and that made it immediately nicer and easier to use than the Windows machine, and I still stand by that, even though um, the old system OS was unreliable as hell, kept crashing. Uh, still nicer to use, and in many ways, still nicer to use than the, um, uh, like, Mac OS, uh, Mac OS 10 that, that took over from it. Basically, for a long time, being a Mac user was a big part of my computer identity. And one of the, one of the things about about the media environment is that it's like same as with design; it's very Mac oriented. The computer labs at the at the Art Media Design Faculty I I went to was were Macs exclusively, and uh, you know, not a single Windows machine. I, no, there was one Windows machine that was in the audio studio that controlled. What was the? They they had a, a audio board that was Windows only. Or I can't remember. They they got bought later on and then merged and renamed Pro Tools. Pretty sure that 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 machine was the only one that was Windows based <laughs> at the university where I studied first. So I've always been. It's been a part of my identity, but I think always from a reasoned perspective in that the Apple Human Interface Guidelines are actually a solid document. It's actually a solid design document. And sort of my ambivalence about Apple tends to have increased proportionally with their decline in uh, user interface design, which has been steady. And it's kind of, that's one of the reasons why those podcast turned me off is that they don't see that the modern mac os has a much much worse user interface than it did 10 years ago it's had a massive decline it's it's just i i i can't these are like all of these guys in this podcast they've been using macs for probably 20 years and 
they keep talking about the improvements and new features and they can't see the fact that it is like just the new system preferences, system settings, like where they normalized it so it looks a bit like it does on the iPhone. It's awful. It's a, it's a, it's an awful, awful idea. Discutility is awful. Degra- uh, uh, it's degraded over the over the all of us. The Apple software has been in a constant decline for the past ten years, and it's been really frustrating to like. Why aren't they angry? They like they should be angry about this. Like if they were actually like looking at this from an actual user perspective, they should be just really constantly angry about how they're being screwed over by basically the features of these platforms constantly being harder and harder to use. And it's just, I, I don't get it. I don't get why why nobody, it's like, it feels being like being gaslit. It's like, oh my God, this is this is such an amazing new feature and it enables these things. It's like, but it's made everything else harder. And it applies to other like Apple devices, like the iPad. It's like, I use my iPad for like ninety percent of my of my online reading. It's a great reading tool, and there's the like I bought literally the first generation iPad, and I've been buying it regularly as it improved. And then during one old damn OS upgrade, all of a sudden they changed one of the gestures that I regularly use. Like I, there's a like scroll forward, scroll back gesture that you do when you're when you're browsing, and all of a sudden. Half the half the fucking time, when I scroll back, I it launches a fucking screenshot tool, and it's like for fuck's sake, I've had this muscle memory uh, 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 gesture thing down for a literal fucking decade, and you fucking change it on me so that now I have to fucking every fucking time I have to scroll on the fucking internet, I pop up a fucking screenshot. I'm not fucking taking a screenshot of Twitter for the ten thousand time, and it's like what. Did they not test this with anybody? What's fucking going? So, as you can tell, this is a huge source of frustration for me, and it because it happens every day. Like literally every single morning, I run into this, and I have to try and retrain a muscle, muscle memory gesture, a gesture that I've had trained for a decade, and now they change. And it's not the only one. They do this with trackpad gestures on on the mouse and with. They move things that were had been in the same place for a decade, and they, and it, it's just why they aren't just. I'm so so angry about this. I get speechless, and I, as you can tell, that's not that doesn't happen often. <laughs> it's rare that I I get speechless, but why this isn't like a, th- a running theme through every single Mac Media podcast, Mac Tech podcast for the past like four or five years. Why are they talking about like handover between the uh, with the, between the iPhone and the Mac when none of the basic features are working? It's like, what are they doing on these Macs that they aren't running into these issues? I, I just don't get it. I just don't get why they aren't running into the same day to day increasing frustrations um, that are with these uh, devices that I do, and uh, this feels like such a portrayal because. The the uh, the app was always better. It was like the user interface. It, the computers were crap. The computers were slow. They were unreliable. Like my Mac performer literally had a loose wire where the screen turned yellow half the time. Like the production quality was awful, but the user interface was always amazing. It was always great. And it, even the Mac OS X, it was the best Unix there was, like in terms of usability. Now we've reached a point where... Like a Linux desktop system 
that's with a use interface put together by bloody volunteers, by nerds who, you know, refuse to even read through a single human interface catalog. They have a nicer and easier to do, to use desktop user interface than the Mac. And it's like, that just should not happen. That's not, that's like world reality breaking change that GNOME should not be easier to use than uh, a new macOS desktop system. And why we let them get away with it is just boggles the mind. I don't get it. It's just, that's another reason why. It's like, I keep listening to them talk about these features. And it's like, but this software's awful. It's unreliable. It's like, it's like when they changed Safari and it's like all of a sudden you had to relearn all the tab thingies. And then they rolled that back and you had to relearn it again. And, and now it's like, they, then they change something with the tab loading so that now when you're navigating, switching between tabs and it starts reloading and then it shifts all of a sudden, then when it finishes reloading. So, but it, I, I was all, I, what was going on? Well, I wasn't there. Um, and it's just, yeah. So I'm frustrated with the current Mac community because they, they just don't seem to see that we've kind of switched from having not the best hardware, but really nice user interfaces. And now we switch to having the best hardware, but worse use interfaces. And it's like, I mean, I, lo- I love the new ARM Macs. They're amazing. They're great. They're incredibly fast. But just spend a couple of years improving the user interface. Just polish it a bit. And it's just, it's obviously not working. And it, it just feels weird that nobody's talking about it. Or like the people who are talking about it get so angry so quickly that they're not good uh, guests on podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> it's like um, there's a, a software developer and entrepreneur called Amy Hoy, and uh, she's uh, a, you, uh, like has a long background in UX design. And you know you see some of her rants on social media, and it's like get her talking about some of the decline in some of the, some of the decline in, in user interfaces in many major. Uh, platforms over the past two years and it'll just looks like see like a hundred tweets like boom in a thread it's like people get so angry and there's people in the like ux uh like user experience user interface design field get so angry about this because it feels like such a betrayal it's like the mac was the haven it was like it was the place um where you knew that user experience would be prioritized and now it's just they're just like windows they're just, they've got exactly the same philosophy about user interface design as Windows. It's just, how can we, you know, shove more features into this because we need that for the next release? You know, it's what it is. Um, it's a letdown, but, you know, learned that it's a mistake to support um, tech companies like their sports team or something. It's, and that's kind of the attitude I had for Apple for a long time. It was like my team. Um, but, you know, mega corporations aren't on anybody's team. They're just on their own team. So yeah, it's keeping a distance, uh, like uh, an emotional distance to them is healthy, uh, which I'm obviously failing at because otherwise I wouldn't be so angry. <laughs> <laughs> so this is feeding into that process of defamiliarization that you mentioned before. Yeah, yeah. I, I also did this uh, like deliberate experiment uh, where I, for a while there, I was running... It sounds mad when I describe it, but I was alternating uh, equal time between Mac OS, Windows, and desktop Linux um, as a part of work. Um, even did a stint on Chrome OS and sort of to get a sense of how they compared 
it sounds like hyperbole, but they're all awful. They're all like, it's obviously no thought put whatsoever into actual productivity. Like back in the old days, like 20 years ago, they used to actually to do productivity studies where they measured how quickly you you could do specific tasks in your computer and how, you know whether you needed help and, and they don't do any of that anymore they don't none of these platforms do that you can tell you can tell because there's regressions in every release and like windows is prettier now than it used to but it's still shit um discipline has improved but you still have the driver issue where you blink and something goes wrong and you're down to having to solve it with a command line because there's some major gap in functionality there that nobody's gotten around to fixing. Chromos is just garbage. It's like, I don't understand how they managed to take something as simple as this is an operating system that just has a web browser and nothing else and turn it into garbage, but they did. I don't know how they did it, but it's unusable. It's it's flaky. I managed to crash. I know I'm a bug magnet. I've got this sort of personality that pushes the boundaries of what computers can do. It's like I will do things like try, like say, what happens if this browser has two hundred open tabs in it, and uh, you know nothing good. I can tell you that it's uh, it'll it'll be fine for a while, but then like turns out browsers have memory leaks. Uh, <laughs> but it, like Chromos is awful. I don't feel like why they punish school children by use, uh, forcing them to use Chromos is beyond me. It's just an atrocious operating system. And then they keep changing it as well. It's like you learn how to use it one day and then they move everything around to the next because, you know, you know who uh, JWZ is, who uh, one of the early employees on Netscape made his money in the dot-com boom. He coined the term cascade of attention to visit teenagers. It's the development uh, software uh, development model for all modern software, as in it's a bunch of uh, people who lose interest in what they're doing and do something new every new season. So there's always change and there's no reliability. There's no consistency. Um, it's just uh, you get used to something and then there's another cascade of attention to, to visit teenagers that get interested and everything changes. And it's like modern software is just like that. And it's it's a struggle to find some stability in there. And that's kind of Another reason why it gets so frustrating to hear people talk in such fond words about this uh, feature cascade in that I need stability for my work, man. I need the underlying platform for my work to not change. Like, don't move. It's like, you're the foundation. You're not supposed to move. It's like foundations that shift and move are not good foundations. They're bad foundations. Operating systems should be stable. They should not change. They should be... But we don't have that today. Um, we have the other thing, which is that everybody needs to have a new feature this this season because apparently that sells computers. So it's frustrating. At least uh, sort of the desktop Linux thing, even though they have like so many problems with uh, with desktop Linux. It's like nice veneer of interesting design for a lot of them, but like huge gaps where like yeah no this. Major thing, nobody got around to writing that. So you have to hand code that in Perl. And it's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so I don't have the time to do that sort of nonsense. I don't know. It's it's just a frustrating time, I find, to be in software because it does feel like there's been a sea change over the past four or five years. It didn't used to be this unstable. 
especially like the Mac. I, I think that might have been just like they were disinterested in it. So they, that's why they didn't weren't changing it all the time. So maybe the stagnation would have been a better a better option. I don't know. Same thing with Windows. It's like it's constantly changing now. They're they're moving it and every moving things in every release, and that's because they're finally like updating it. Maybe it would have all just been better off if they just sat on Windows 7 for several years and not done anything. Of course, we would have gotten a ton of security bugs, so it would have been an improvement. But it would have been a bit of a different kind of disaster, I think. I'm hoping uh, that there's going to be a, a return to uh, different kinds of software development now that they laid all of those people off. But like I said, they need to play through the systemic decline first because... I don't know, you know, anybody who tells you that you can actually lay off 20% of, of the workforce of a software company and not have uh, seriously bad things happen, they're lying to you. They're, it's just impossible. It's just a question of time. So if you see like reliability errors or like, I'll bet the first, like you're going to see a lot more moderation failures for um, the public facing sides of, of these companies. But yeah, anyway, uh, I'm hoping that after everything goes a little bit to pot, uh, we'll have an era where people focus on stability and improving things. But we're not there yet. And probably we'll have to get over the AI nonsense first, which is frustrating because there's just so much making shit up going on there. Uh, so many, so many lies. I mean, not lies. Well, they are lies. But <laughs> people think they're saying they, they think they're telling the truth. Uh, so I don't know what I'm what what to call that delusions. Yeah, let's call it delusions. Like they literally think that they're on the verge of of like creating hell in a good way, which is like a nonsense proposition right at the uh, right at the start. Anyway, I've been rambling, thinking out loud. I think is the term. No, no, that's that kind of extended thought process or sharing your views or experiences. That's exactly what I'm after. And I suppose as my last kind of formal question, I want to pick up on that word that you said towards the end there, which was hoping or hope. You were talking specifically about a future direction for software development. Taking that hope that you're expressing, and I'm not going to ask you to predict anything because I know what you said about predictions. What's your kind of hope for the media environment, things like podcasting, you spoke about multi-format, RSS, and so on. What's your hope for the direction of things like podcasts and audio and other supplementary or surrounding media, given your experience in broadcasting and interactive media? Well, my hope is that more people will realize how important it is to have a website with an RSS feed and as a hub for whatever project you're having that you you, you should not I never like refer to a facebook page or an apple podcast page as the the core hub for your project uh, and this this applies to like pretty much everywhere like with open source software the github repository is not the homepage for your software project that's uh you you need a website you, it, that's the hub and that technology still works. It's uh, you still kind of you can do still amazing things with like static markup. Um, you know, whether it's HTML or or XML or RSS, you can still do incredibly powerful things just with 
loading markup in a on a website, whether it's dynamic or static or or whatever. And that is an incredibly capable hub that you can build on. Don't build on on threads or blue sky or whatever. You know, you you have your core, your open core built on open protocols and and open file formats, and you feed in all the clothes stuff from there. Uh, that's worked amazingly well for a lot of people and a lot of businesses for the past 20 years. And it's likely going to outlast. I mean, there's a decent chance that my personal website will have outlasted, uh, will outlast Twitter. <laughs> you know, it was there before Twitter and there's a good chance by the looks of it, that's going to outlast Twitter. And there's going to be, it's going to outlast app platform du jour, a lot of people think that you need these massive web development frameworks to do anything interesting, but every project I do is run from a static a static site, static markup, flat files, processed and built and pushed out onto the web. There's no complex client-side stuff, no complex server-side stuff. It's just content in a markup file and uh, some with some nice styles on top and... Uh, that works incredibly well. And it's works in a, in a way that is surprisingly, like has a surprising reach. Like you could open, for example, uh, um, one of the Macs that I used for the longest time was the, what, what my dad calls the toilet seat iBooks. <laughs> uh, like the one I see in, your, in the background. G3. Yeah, I had one of those for the longest time. Wrote so much on it and worked. And um, had a, like, uh, if I remember correctly, I had an early version of uh, NetNewsWire, um, the, the RSS feed reader, which got resurrected and is still, is still going on now with the same developer. And I've been maintaining my list of, of uh, RSS feeds ever since. It's literally uh, like I've got in my current OPML file, it's uh, like something like 1200 RSS feeds. Half of them are inactive because I never removed uh, an RSS feed, even though like the blog I was well, like I was following. Uh, so some of them were blogs I was following in like 2006, uh, and they stopped. And the domain has lapsed and everything, but it's still there. And if somebody if they renew the blog, uh, the the uh, the domain and start posting again, I literally will start get uh, updates. And that has actually happened. Uh, there's been. Like I've had a, a blog, uh, seen a couple of times, blogs get resurrected like four or five years later. And uh, same thing applies with podcasts. This, this thing's durable, man. This lasts forever. And that's an amazing, amazing base to build on. And there's nothing else that can rival that. It's like if you leave a social media account uh, untouched for, you know, eight years, if in the unlikely case that they don't just unilaterally turn you off and hand out your username to somebody else odds are that something will go wrong when you when it's resurrected and you won't get, reach any of the same people that were listening or were you were reaching at the start if the platform is even still around in the first place but with an rss feed it's like still in my uh, uh, you know if i didn't unsubscribe and i've been maintain uh, using the same feed reader apps for 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 years start posting again i'll start reading again yeah, I've seen you for a while. Welcome back, and it's it's great um, because where it's like um, one of the things that people misunderstand, I think, about both um, blogs and podcasts is that you don't have to do this like on a 
cadence like every week or every month or it's like my app that I'm using will let me know when you update and it's like I've got a bunch of uh, things in my feed reader that are you know clearly blogs that are only updated when the writer has a undeniable irresistible need to write about something and those are always amazing those are always great it's like somebody uh, there's something that caused the urge of somebody to come back after five years and write about something it's always amazing to read it's it's it doesn't matter if it sounds mundane it's something that in there that there's an emotion there that drove them to it and it you can comes through in the text same thing like uh, with podcasts that were inactive and somebody comes back. I think, like, for example, the uh, uh, the Amy Hoy that I mentioned earlier, she had a Stacking the Bricks po- podcast that was inactive. And then there was a new episode and it was like, it was like amazing. It's great to listen. It's like they, they felt the need to say something and it talked about uh, coming back after illness and it was like full of positive energy. And that's something that the closed platforms just can never match. They'll never have that. It's not built into them. It's built into the open platform. And that's why it's it's uh, it's always going to be my go-to. It's so many great experiences there. <laughs> now, and you've made it very clear that devotion to RSS and that mm. stability or that ability for things to return serendipitously or unexpectedly. That's really, really interesting. Now, We've covered a lot or you've shared a lot of your history and views, and I really appreciate that. Is there anything that I haven't prompted or asked you specifically that you would like to share before we finish recording? Nothing really that comes to mind, except uh, um, just I like the reiterate the the this is the, uh, the this is the plumbing of the web. This is like RSS and podcasts and blogs. People may think they're outmoded and abandoned and gone, but they're still there. And there's still thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who who follow even blogs are still there. And podcasts, even though there there's a talk about a, like a podcast downturn or like sponsorships going away, it's still going to be there in 10 years. Podcasts are still going to be uh, going to be here as long as there's a network. Uh, and you can't say that about any of the other crap that's um, that uh, the tech industry is pushing out these days. That's the uh, I think that's that's the note I would like to end on. <laughs> now that's perfect, and I don't think anyone's going to misunderstand what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Very direct, very clear. Look, Balta, this has been absolutely fantastic. I want to thank you for your generous time on really specific stories. Thank you for agreeing to the interview and sharing your views with listeners. It's been my pleasure.